What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Writing Friction. And as always, today's guest is pretty cool and not from, but living in New Jersey. Everyone say hello to Margarita Montemore. How are you? Hello. I am great. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, most definitely. Um, is it still snowing there? My mother texts me every day. <laughs> no, it's starting to melt, but then we have like additional snowstorms that are like threatening and threatening. And of course, like our salt is coming like literally the day after the worst of it is supposed to happen. So yeah. Uh, so far, it's held off, but um, there's still enough for our dog to chew uh, on the ice and oh, yeah. kind of slip around and have fun. And yeah, well, we have a po- uh, the puppy. Has, the podcast has a puppy. Her name is Reba, uh, but she's in the crate because I've been trying to have her out during the podcast, but she mm-hmm. chews on everything, not just snow. But it doesn't snow in California, so that's why. I love what her. breed? She's a mini English bulldog. Oh, oh, she's the cutest frigging thing ever. Um, yeah, yeah, but she usually chills on my lap, and then she'll jump, and then it's game over, and then it's like it, I can't do this. Oh, <laughs> yeah, my dog's seventy pounds. If she chilled on my lap, my legs would go numb. There it is. Uh, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. So you are East Coast all the way, right? You grew up. You're originally from. You said you were born in New York. Oh, I was actually born in Soviet Ukraine, but I mean, not New York. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I came over. You know, at four, my yeah, name okay. Was so I grew up in Brooklyn. And, you know, I used to talk like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Bensonhurst. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I've lived mostly on the East Coast College in Boston. Uh, and then other than a, like, quick year and a half stint in London, because why not? Um, I moved back to New York. So, yeah, I've, I've pretty much uh, been on this on this side of the country. But, you know, it's just how it's worked out. But you certainly, yeah, like, I, I'll always feel like a Brooklyn girl at heart, I think, just because that's what's been ingrained in me. Yeah. Wh- uh, what neighborhood in Brooklyn? Oh, gosh. Well, we lived, when we first came to America, we lived in Crown Heights, yeah. and then we moved to Bensonhurst. And then I spent uh, most time, and my mother is still in Marine Park, if you know that, or not far yeah, from yeah, yeah. So it's like deep Brooklyn. It's not yeah. cool Brooklyn. I like. I remember when Brooklyn was embarrassing, and so you I. know when it was like the bridge and tunnel. Like it was not cool at all. And I got to live there because I also lived in South Park Slope during the most of the time that I was there, kind of on my own. Yeah. Um, and I saw it go from this place where people would kind of like, eh, "You're from Brooklyn," to like super hipster everything's artisanal like what is going on here yeah so yeah, it's yeah. a wild place i mean my mother's from the bronx i was born in queens but mm-hmm. her father was from brooklyn so growing up as a kid i grew up in north jersey he would take us in, my sister and i into williamsburg and mm-hmm. this is you know 1990 1989 yeah. and he would just to show us jewish people you know yeah and- <laughs> Yeah, we were those. Now, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, right? So like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, he was like, you know, these are our people, and he would. Sh- I'm a kid. You have no idea. And if he were alive today, and he ordered, you know, a latte from a, a coffee place in Williamsburg, <laughs> he'd be like, "What the fuck is going on?" Um, yeah, interesting. Um, but you say you were born in Ukraine, correct? Yeah. Um, are yeah, you both? You're, I'm both Russian. You're, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, Russian for all intents and purposes. So like, you know, it's when it was the USSR. So it was one big place. Um, so I consider myself Russian just cause my, yeah, my family is like Romanian and, you know, all over kind of, uh, Eastern Europe, but yes. Soviet. <laughs> so growing up, I mean, obviously that was a different time in the world. And, you know, I don't, I don't even know the travel restrictions nowadays, but did you ever have a chance growing up to travel there? Never. No. Yeah. No, it was so hard for us to get out that we <laughs> pretty much yeah, did not yeah. want to take any risks. Wow. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we still have some family like in Moldova and um, different parts of, of Russia, but um, someday perhaps. But um, yeah, I mean, because my father, my late father, he actually um, put in permission they filed for visas it was him and his parents and it took 10 years and during the 10 years because we came over on refugee visas um during that time 
he met my mother. I was born. His parents both died. So when the visas came through, my mother and I took the visas that were meant for his parents. Oh, wow. If we were able to come over. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty wild. And, you know, I know we were very lucky to yeah. end up here. So when you, when your family landed within, you know, the boroughs of New York city, um, were your parents, was that part of, was there a community that you landed in a Russian, Ukrainian, Eastern European? Was that part of your upbringing? Actually, the community, we, um, so we immigrated through Italy. We were, since we came over um, as refugees, we were uh, embraced by the, we were part of the Jewish community and actually part of the Hasidic community. We, lo- we love them, everybody. So we everybody hates us. We love everyone else. (laughs) (laughs) And because we had the choice, Israel or America and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, chose America. So that kind of was the transition. And I mean, that so it was kind of like two culture shocks. There was the, you know, America, new language culture shock. And then, you know, the Hasidic community itself is very, very, very intense. And then after a few years, because it was rough in yeah. Crown Heights, um, then going from that to Bensonhurst, which is, you know, very Italian. And I mean, I loved it. I, I'd like to the point where I know in school, once I like told everybody I was Italian, I just like adopted the Italian um, heritage for myself. I mean, so it's like North Jersey, the same thing. Everyone's yeah. Italian and Jewish. Yeah. But we had, we definitely had Russian, you know, my parents had Russian friends because they were um, involved in like the community centers. They would perform my, they were both singers. And so they were always rehearsing. My mom played the piano and sang and my dad was a singer, an opera singer. So every time we'd go to parties, my parents didn't believe in babysitters. So I would go to these big Russian parties. They'd be playing piano like all night and singing and, you know, just the life of the party. And I'd be there with my little BC Andrews books reading. And, oh, if I hear Fiddler on the Roof one more time, (laughs) oh, Barbara Streisand again. Okay. (laughs) But of course, like, I loved it too. Yeah. Yeah. My mother used to take me instead of getting a babysitter on Wednesday, the bowling nights with all her friends, she would just take me and they would shove us literally kids in the bar area. They would, fence it off and people just smoking cigarettes drinking bud lights and kids running underneath the pool tables while their mother is bold oh um, my gosh different world awesome. yeah just a different world um yeah. okay all right well you mentioned some books you're reading some books um you know uh, this is where i kind of get to what brought you to writing you know i'm mm-hmm. assuming you were a reader your whole life were you writing at a young age too yes i was i remember at, <laughs> the funny thing is so my mom still brags about this poem I wrote when I was nine years old. Is it on the fridge called, still? Do I? I'm sorry. Is it on the fridge still? Oh gosh, I, I think my mother still has it in a drawer somewhere. I would not be surprised. Um, and it, it was called humbly "War and Peace." So I certainly, even as a nine-year-old aspiring poet, I had some lofty ambitions. Uh, for me, it was as a kid, it was more diaries. Uh, I was like six or seven years old. We were in a stationery store, and I forced my parents to buy me this Hello Kitty diary with a lock, you know, so I could keep all my thoughts private. You said Hello Kitty. Oh, Hello Kitty. Yes, I so, still so have. Hel- I mean. I- I thought Hello Kitty started like seven years ago. Hello Kitty's been around forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Know. Yes. I okay. mean, definitely as far back as the 80s, uh, <laughs> which is, yeah, when I kind of began my versioning career uh, as a writer. Yeah. So it was a lot of diaries, um, a lot of, you know, a little bit of poetry, and then moved into short stories once I got kind of later in elementary school. And then high school, really kind of that's when things took off. And, uh, so you, I'm assuming you went into college with the ideas of wanting to be a writer or were you pursuing that goal? Believe it or not. Yes. I actually was looking for schools with a creative writing major. Um, so because, you know, I really had practical career, (laughs) a career ladder in mind that, you know, that those, those successful, lucrative, creative writing jobs, you know, you graduate and everybody's Uh, knocking down your door, wanting to give you six figure salaries for creative writing. Uh, No, but I just, I loved it so much. I knew that this is, you know, there was nothing else that I felt 
so, so passionate about. Of course, I loved reading. So it's like, okay, but I don't want to be an English major. Like, no, I, this is, I'm, I'm young enough and passionate enough to really go for what I love. And then I'll figure out kind of the rest of it. And it wasn't until my senior year of college that I was like, I really don't know what I'm going to do now. I had like the best time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, but you know, it was, it was great to, you know, despite my father wanting me to go into law or medicine, um, being able to just fully immerse myself into what I, what I really loved. Well, I mean, that, that seems to be, you know, the children of, you know, of of, of immigrants. It's always, they want their kids to be, if they're going to America, they have to be the best possible thing in America, the doctor, the lawyer, the attorney, (laughs) the surgeon. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I wish I had, parents that were like that. My parents uh, were not like that. They were kind of like, uh, all right, we'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a good balance because my my father was the really strict, you know, I would get a 97 on a test and yeah. he'd be like, where are the other three points? It was yeah. like that kind of family. Yeah. But then my mother would be like, you're a unicorn. You can be whatever you want to be. You want to write, you go write. And so it was a good kind of push and pull. Like, so it made me grow up kind of with a sense of, okay, being pragmatic and, you know, being self-sufficient and hardworking is important, but dreaming and having crazy ideas and, and really, you know, going for whatever those, those wild, you know, just kind of think of whatever you want to do and just try to pursue it. Like, you know, my parents' dream was to come to America and they did it. So why can't I kind of come up with my own crazy dreams to, fulfill. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're getting two equal forces, but two different things where your father's, mm-hmm. the, you know, not the disciplinarian, but the person who's kind of driving you to do better, do better. And yeah. you said your mother's kind of like, well, you could also do anything. Yes. Um, so it seemed like two equal positive forces in your life. That's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, as a grown up, I see it from a very kind of, of- much, much rosier, like what a great balanced upbringing, you know, when I was going through it and I was the angsty teen, of course it felt like, you know, a tug of war and just, oh, like full of conflict. But yes, I definitely appreciate it now that I can look back on it. Yeah. And, and growing up as a city kid, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, but New York Mm -hmm. city was always there. My father worked in Manhattan, you know, Mm -hmm. I was in New York, twice a week, but I never mm-hmm. lived, you know, in the concrete jungle, yeah. um, you know? So yeah, growing up, I mean, I, you know, all the city kids I know, especially New York kids from like the eighties and nineties, you know, there's a toughness. There's a, you got to just get shit done. It doesn't make no one <laughs> anything, you know, you kind of just got to go forward with what you got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I was a city kid, but my parents were also really, really overprotective. Ah, so yeah. I wasn't allowed to ride the subway until yeah. alone until I was like 16 or yeah. some crazy age. So even though we lived in Brooklyn, I went to school on the, from seventh through 12th grade on the upper East side. Oh, sure. It was like a two hour Ugh. ride on this yeah. like private bus. My parents got for me. So I had, I had a two hour commute from the time I was like 12 years old. It was insane. But then at the same time, having science homework that required me to go to the metropolitan, well, art homework that I had to go to the Met for and museum of natural history, I had to do like an ecology project by going to an exhibit there. And I mean, yeah, just, you know, going, going out to lunch and seeing a Woody Allen movie being shot a block away. And of course it was like, that was amazing. Just seeing, um, and, and just also kind of the, the diversity that, you know, I'm an immigrant and growing up, I had, you know, friends that were also immigrants or, you know, biracial from different cultures. And it was so fascinating to me, like just to share our stories. And I think kind of that's where that sense of storytelling really started to emerge just that like, I want to know what your story is and, you know, tell me about like your background and your culture and um, just kind of looking at what makes an individual who they are and what makes them different and Mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah. So you're growing up, you're living in New York. You're not living in the movie kids, apparently. Um. (laughs) You know what? I'm not, but I swear to God, that was the theme for our senior yearbook. That was the, yes, it was so messed up. I know. That movie fucked me. Uh, I saw that movie when you should not. I saw that. I was probably, 
I mean, I don't know what your age you are, but I'm 33. I saw that movie when I was probably like 13. Yeah, I was older when I saw it. And, and it still messed me up too. That, yeah. That, I mean, but speaking about how powerful art can be. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. What a, yeah. So, you, all right. So you didn't live in that movie. Um, good to no. know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you go to college, um, you, you're, you're studying creative writing, yes. but you didn't immediately become a writer, correct? No, I mean, you know, I, I wrote, I wrote so much in college, but when I was graduating, I really, yeah, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I thought, okay, this is, I do know I want to see more of the world. Um, you know, I had the option of either staying in Boston, going back to New York and kind of starting you know, looking for a job in publishing, because that seemed like the most natural extension. But I thought, I'm not going to get a lot of chances to do really spontaneous, crazy things. And so I got a work permit. I never even visited England before in my life, but I moved there. And I ended up moving there for six months, did not know a single person. I didn't have a job. I had one week booked in a hostel. And um, money that I saved up from working summer jobs in cash that I exchanged for pounds at the airport. That's how completely foolish I was. And I just had to everyone listening, work. pay attention to that. <laughs> Never do that. And don't Never. take all your money in cash. Never. Oh gosh. Nope. There's so many, and, but always, keep, always keep a little bit of American money on you. Not a lot, just yeah. a little bit. You always, anywhere in the world, Ameri- <laughs> people will always take a U.S. dollar. Oh my gosh, it was crazy. Yeah. And I, uh, so I, I did kind of, I got a job there. I worked in headhunting and then Can you describe back, headhunting for people. Uh, headhunting is, so it's recruitment, but where you lie and pretend to be other people so that you poach people from other companies. Like the, the whole philosophy is that the best candidates for jobs are already in other jobs. So yeah. So I had like fake names that I would use and it kind of was tough because I was American and I couldn't do a British accent. So sometimes people would be like, wait, you're Audrey, but you sound just like that girl Eve I talked to last week. And it's like, oh, that's my colleague. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, but it was fun. It kind of, I had to hustle and kind of challenge myself in different ways. And I got to see a lot of the UK and Europe in the process just by being over there. And then I came back to New York a few months after 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, an interesting transition. I mean, we, we all have 9-11 stories. So you were yeah. not in America when 9-11 happened. I was in London and I woke up wa- and I watched everything happen live on TV. Sure. In a total daze. And then this is the, so this is the craziest thing. So my, my father at the time worked in construction and he worked downtown in Manhattan and my mother. So one of the ways that we communicated, this is before smartphones, before WhatsApp. So we had like calling cards or we could talk online, but my parents didn't use instant messenger. They played this online poker game and it was called pig poker. And that's how we would chat online. That was like, our bonding was always through gambling. Like I went, we would go to Atlantic city and like, those were our little trips. We'd play poker together and blackjack, all that. So we would keep in touch while I was abroad through pig poker. And when 9-11 happened, all the phone lines were down, Mm -hmm. but the pig poker chat rooms were still up. And that's how I was able to connect with my parents and find out that everybody was okay. Everybody was safe. And it was just such a relief to like have that lifeline with them. And so surreal, just all of it. Um, So, yeah. So, you know, coming back to that was uh, just you know, yeah, on, on I mean, top of yeah, having I, my father yeah. worked in the trade center from 1990 to 2000. Oh, wow. He worked wow. on the 89th floor. Mm. Um, and he, my whole life, he, I, I've been, in t- I was in the top of that building half a dozen times. Um, wow. and I was a freshman in high school mm-hmm. morning of nine 11. I was 15 miles West of Manhattan. If you drove out of my, I, I'm from Mawa. If you yeah. drive out on the route 17 and mm-hmm. you to Ramsey, Lower Manhattan is literally postcard in your face. Oh my gosh! And ne- my mother, my brother had just started working for American Express, maybe mm-hmm. maybe six months prior, mm-hmm. and it happened. Someone told me we were watching it on the news in the first period, 
second period, my mother couldn't get in touch with my brother. No one knew where he was. She Mm -hmm. literally dragged me out of the classroom. Kids were, I mean, you know, again, everyone has their 9-11 story. It's just, you know, where were you on that day? But yeah, I mean, that affected everyone, obviously. Um, Yeah, but I remember going to a month after 9-11, going to the what now no longer exists, the Roseland Ballroom for Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I saw a lot the of shows man. there, and I saw um, yeah. uh, MXPX and Newfound Glory a uh-huh. month after 9-11, and my father came and chaperoned us. Um, I remember, I mean, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it was a crazy time, yeah, obviously, yeah. Yeah, but I will say, you know, because I remember at the time thinking, like, oh my gosh, like, life will never be the same, life will never get back to normal, and moving back to New York, and, you know, it was, it was difficult on so many levels, yeah. but seeing life actually resume and seeing like how it was rebuilt. Like there, there was something about it that was so incredible just to, to see the resilience and to see, you know, everybody keep going and like to see it all kind of firsthand, like living in the city, like it made me feel just very, just so gratified to kind of be one little tiny puzzle piece in this huge mosaic, you know? Yeah, it gives hope for humanity. It always does. You know, people yeah. know you can come together. Um, yeah. All right. So, yeah, so you moved back to New York, obviously, at an interesting time. Um, why did you move back to New York? What, 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 what was the next step in your life? Well, my visa was running out. My work permit okay, was yeah. running out. And I just, you know, headhunting was not a lifelong career. Uh, so I needed to, yeah, I needed to move back. I'm my, you know, my family, my friends, pretty much my, most of my kind of support network was in New York. And I was very fortunate. The, I, so the summers in that I was in college, I worked uh, at an insurance company. The, uh, the, the head of the company was a family friend. And he said, you know, I know you want to work with books. I know you want to work in publishing, but you know, right now it might be tough for you to find a job. So you have a job here anytime you need it. So the fact that, you know, I was able to come back to New York and have work and start saving up money while I was, you know, trying to write, trying to get my foot in the door with publishing. Um, that was, it was everything, you know, it was not at all a glamorous job, you know, working at an insurance company is exactly what you will imagine it is. And, um, but, you know, I had to do something and fortunately I was, uh, you know, it took a year and a half actually, but I did find a job with a literary agency. Um, all right. Well, all right. Well, two questions. Um, the first question, um, when you were doing the insurance job, were you, was it the kind of thing where you, you know, right before work, right after work, right during when you can, I mean, were you writing at all during that time? It was mm, not as much as I wanted to No, No, I actually... That was the thing I thought, oh, well, you know, when you have a boring job, I'll just write loads and loads of novels. But there is something about being in a cubicle under those, you know, neon lights that just sucks all of the creativity out of you. Um, I was still blogging. Uh, Live journal was a thing then. And uh, so was so was online dating. So I was, uh, yeah, you know, still is. Trust me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was just kind of discovering that world. So, you know, I still kind of kept kept busy, tried to keep the creative um, juices flowing in some regards, but not writing fiction so much. I've always wanted to start a podcast called Tinder 1.0, and it only (laughs) will involve the people who were there from the Genesis, like me, who was (laughs) one of the first people and still all these years later are still on the (laughs) app. Um, yeah, Tinder 1.0. Um, all right, cool. Yeah. So you do the insurance thing. Um, yeah. and then you said you got a job at a literary agency. Yeah. Um, I'm new to the writing world. I'm new sure. to literary agents. I'm new to their assistance. I'm mm-hmm. new to all the things. Um, w- were you excited about that job? I mean, Thrill. Thrill. No? Oh, I was so excited because okay. I worked. For an agent in high school, um, so the high school I went to had, we had internships our senior year of high school. So we were able to actually like get a little preview into what your career might look like. So I I interned with a literary agent. I mean, she worked out of her 
Upper East Side apartment. But I, so I already had that experience and I loved it so, so much. And so, and I knew how tough I, I was told like 200 people applied for this job. And it wasn't even being an assistant to this agent. It was being her second assistant yeah, yeah. because she's, she was in the business for so, so long and there was just so much to do. Um, so I could not be more thrilled. Interesting. Um, I don't, you know, you can tell us how long you did that job, but um, mm-hmm. for me, when I was querying my first book last year, mm-hmm. again, you know, I hadn't, I'm from the music world. So the music mm-hmm. world, it's just, you know, it's as DIY as you can get. If you want something done, you fucking shove the CD in front of someone's face and hope they listen to it. Right. I approached the literary world the same way. And I learned a very, very tough lesson that, mm-hmm. um, a, they don't want me. Uh, and B, um, it, you have to go about, you have to query certain ways to certain people who are going to, I just did a, I sent out a thousand queries, you know, Mm. and just crossed my fingers. Um, Working in that world, I'm assuming that helped you later on when you were with your own book that we obviously people can see behind you. That's why you're here to promote. Um, What did you see working for the literary agents? Were you kind of disillusioned? Were you, what was that like for you? It wasn't, disillusioning as much as it showed me just how difficult it is for a writer to break through. Um, You know, seeing that even, you know, and just to go back to something you said, like how you try, you know, you approach the literary world and they didn't want you. That's not true. Like, I don't try. I take no offense. Do not. I know. I know. But I will. I will say that it's not that they don't want you. It's that you have to go through it a certain way and take. So it's. It's like there's an etiquette, but also seeing kind of seeing things from an agency side. I understand why that's necessary. They're called the gatekeepers, but also when you are inundated with hundreds and hundreds of writers who are, you know, who want to make it then, you know, of course, like you need to have certain guidelines in place. And yes, it's important to understand like what agents are looking for, what kinds of work and what kind of submission process they have. And uh, I thought it was going to help me get a foot in the door. It helped me get my next publishing job at HarperCollins. Um, It did not help me in terms of like actually being an aspiring writer, except for knowing how difficult it was going to be and how even once you have the agent, because I was the person photocopying manuscripts and sending them out to editors. And I was calling editors and have you read this yet? And, you know, do you have any thoughts on it that even once you have the agent shopping it around to publishing houses and getting that offer, just, you know, you run such a gauntlet. So yeah, for me, it was more like, wow. Okay. If this is something I really want, it's not going to come easy at all. So let's think about, you know, maybe I can like develop a career on this side of the business because I do love books so much and I love, you know, just being in that world. What so, year is this? Oh, we're going back. This is uh, like mid 2000s. Very different world. I'm assuming a very different business model too. Had the Kindle even come out at that point? Oh my gosh. You know what? I don't think so. I mean, mm-hmm. it was the fact that I was photocopying manuscripts yeah. Yeah. and that, oh my gosh, I had to print out emails for my boss and file them in a filing cabinet. Like it took, it wasn't until the end of like n- near the end of the time I worked there that um, the agent's first assistant finally showed her how to use like folders in uh, Outlook to file things and just like, I still don't totally trust it. So I'm still going to print out some of the emails. So yeah, just to date it to that extent. And and the one thing I learned, and you correct me if I'm wrong in my querying process, um, you visit some of these agencies' websites and Mm -hmm. they haven't been updated since 1999. Uh, It's, it's, I don't, I don't want, I've never been in, I don't know it. So, but from the outsider's point of view, it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like an, an, quick antiquated business model but at the same time it does seem like this big sluggish monolith that just just it has definitely had to adapt 
and just seeing the evolution of that, like from the time I worked for an agent to, you know, however many 10, 15 years later, when I was querying and seeing how many agents are on Twitter, how many agents are using hashtags. And now there are like websites, manuscriptwishlist.com and querytracker.net. Like how, how much technology has really made things um, made things easier and how many agents have adopted and also, also how many younger agents have come up and are coming up that are seeing, you know, there are so many different ways you can find writers. So for me, it was, um, it was really nice not to have to mail out the, uh, my manuscripts with a self address stamped envelope and, you know, be able to like have spreadsheets. And at the same time, the industry itself, I was, I remember the, the first, the agent that I was with before my current agent said, oh, you know, if, if we were, if this was 10 or 15 years ago, I would have sold your book like so easily. It would have like instantly. So she goes, now it's harder than it's ever been. So yeah. So there are more opportunities and easier way to kind of connect with people, but the gauntlet has gotten even rougher. Harder than it's ever been to to what to publish to a, book, a book like the, a publish a book that you wrote or publish any book. Um, I think publish. <laughs> oh gosh, maybe. But well, I think publish a book that you know just in general. But I guess that isn't kind of a lot of publishers. They just want the big book, or you you know to publish a book if you don't have an existing platform or name, or you know just if you're just kind of starting out and a lot of writers, it used to be that you could just have a book that was a mid-list book or, you know, that you just kind of rose up step by step by step. And, and many authors still do that. It's just a lot tougher now. And yeah, so there's a lot more expectation for kind of the debuts to make that big splash. The publishing world seems to be very keen to hop on trends or what's hot. Mm. It seems like books that come out at certain times, whether it be, you know, the political climate, mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever. I know whenever I walk into whatever bookstore and the books that are being presented to me up front, um, it seems to be, yeah, I, I don't need to be specific about, but it, they seem to not chase trends. Mm -hmm. but the literary world is very conscious of what is being pushed forward, I think, at times in history you've been in it for so long and you're saying like you know how hard it is nowadays to get published uh -huh. can you talk about that maybe a little bit from like an insider's point of view of what books are really getting pushed out to the world and why sure and and that's definitely a challenge for me kind of when i decided to let's let's do this writing thing full time and i was just you know writing and sending out my um my queries and you know i wrote my first book, like in less, I finished it in less than a year and was sending it out. And I was like, oh, I wrote another book in the second year and then wrote, ooh, now, like it was just kind of everything seemed to be like at such a great rhythm. And then the reality of the publishing world, like when I was really trying to get my foot in the door is that, um, yeah, it's competitive, it's tough, but also, you know, books are competing with television and video games and movies and so many different other forms of media. And the and book marketing has had to adapt to technology and become savvier. And, you know, any type of marketing is going to be based, it has to be based on something that's already familiar and successful. So, of course, you know, as soon as you have a huge hit book like Gone Girl, then, all right, let's see what other, how can we, um, you know, kind of build off of this. And so, okay, let's have other books that have girl in the title. Let's have other, you know, domestic thrillers. And so it's Gone Girl meets this, it's Gone Girl meets that. And um, and I totally understand it. And as somebody who loved Gone Girl, I also am the, the audience for, you know, those additional books. And it's certainly, you know, if there's a movie or something that has a, um, a comp title that's something I already love, I'm going to gravitate to it. But I noticed with my own work, it wasn't as easily categorized. So, you know, it wasn't the, the first book that the first novel that I wrote did not have a genre. Like there was a little bit of psychological suspense, a little bit of mystery. There was kind of a dark romantic sort of twisted story. So um, because I couldn't classify it easily, 
it wasn't, it, it was, it was much tougher to send out. Like that agent sent it out to editors who um, specialized in literary fiction, women's fiction, mystery and suspense. I mean, everything, commercial fiction. So the fact that it couldn't really find its, um, its place, that, that was a challenge. And that was definitely something that I worried about. Um, and it just so happened, you know, when I was writing my third book, and then kind of shopping it around. Initially, um, you know, I was it, it, it was sort of a similar problem that, you know, it, the format's unusual. It's, you know, a, every section of the book is a year of this woman's life, but she's a different age internally, externally. So and it hops around decades, not just in time, but also in her life. Um, you know, it's quirky and but to my great fortune, um, after a year of querying and getting hundreds of rejections, time travel started to become a bigger trend in movies and TV. I mean, I feel like it's one of those things that is sort of, it's always there, but it started to emerge more. And one of the trends <clears throat> that I'm seeing now in, um, in fiction and by female authors specifically is um, stories that have <clears throat> Excuse me. Hang on a second. Yeah, no worries. <clears throat> one of the uh, trends that I'm seeing now in fiction, especially written by women, is <clears throat> stories that have a speculative edge. So, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. I uh, like it, it. I love the show Black Mirror, yeah, where course, yeah, you know, or like the Twilight Zone. So it's yeah. something that has that kind of like surreal twist, and it's not high fantasy or hard sci-fi, but it has that kind of um, surreal uh, kind of edge to it or, you know, so, or it's taking a sci-fi concept like time travel or cloning or this or that. And then, but also making it very real and very much about kind of everyday situations and relationships, which is what I I love that kind of speculative fiction that's kind of rooted in reality. That's what Una is. And so seeing other stories, but I didn't, I always felt like I love these stories and I want more of them. So I will write my own. So I love seeing that now there are more and more stories emerging from that. And the fact that this book kind of found an audience, I see it as just, there's definitely an element of luck there, an element of right place, right time, you know, but that time, it took years to get to that time. Yeah, no, of course, um, a couple of things. Um, the first book, did it ever get published? It got self-published. <laughs> so that's what I did. So I, yeah. I got rejected. I got, I received 73 official rejections last uh -huh. year. And I'm like, you know, I wrote a novella, a boxing novella set in Jersey uh -huh. City. And I liked it. I thought it was good writing. Mm -hmm. I, I, and to me, like, I'm not, if I do, it, again, I'm from the music world. Yeah. I've been, I've printed a thousand CDs that no one has ever bought. So nobody was going to stop me from printing 250 of my own books that nobody would ever buy. Mm -hmm. um, and I went on Reddit and I figured out how to self-publish that novella and I did. And now you could buy it anywhere. So, you know, you. I'm happy I got it out into the world because now when I go to query my novel, mm -hmm. it's like there's something there. But I, you, you always hear about publishers. They don't like self-published authors. If you have a self-published book, they won't ever deal with you. Uh, you hear that a lot. And that was definitely a word. Like I was, I was torn because. Why the fuck wouldn't I publish the book? I wrote it. It's good. I like it. Get it out there. And you know what? I feel like if you've tried to do it the traditional way and you haven't been able to get away in, if you believe in your story, then you can build your audience. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? <clears throat> That's exactly how I felt with this book that it's like, okay, well, you know, the, the first book that I published asleep from day, I was like, okay, it, it went to editors and it couldn't find that right home. So let me just at least kind of, it was very empowering to yeah. do all, do everything myself. And also it was such an education. It was such a crash course in production and marketing and publicity. And even Cover though- Cover design, editing. Oh, for everything. sure. And I worked at HarperCollins. So like I saw all of this stuff on the back end, but doing it myself- yeah. It really made me realize why it takes an army yeah. to bring a book out in the world and do it successfully because 
I really wanted every element to be as high quality and and really top-notch. Like I was learning about so many different aspects, but I also realized that it's so time-consuming and expensive and exhausting. And this is time that I am not writing. Yeah. So after the first novel that I self-published, I realized like, that no, in an ideal scenario, like I'm glad I have a book out there. I'm glad I'm starting to build a readership, but I also know that there are people who are very, very good at what they do in the publishing industry and they specialize and they know the market. And I just, I don't have the that kind of bandwidth or brain power to like, you just can't be a master of all of that. Like, I just want to tell stories. And, um, and I just was very, very lucky to um, ha- find a fabulous agent and then um, find a really wonderful publisher. So yeah, so now I, and it gives me a much greater sense of appreciation for what every single person behind the scenes does and just how much time and talent goes into it aside yeah. from what I put on the page. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, to put it in perspective, I can remember researching, you know, I had to buy my own ISBN ball I did codes that. Mm-hmm. and having to, you know, you, you never think about, you just don't think about these things. Oh um, gosh. Yeah. I'm sure wait, your book. Yeah. Your book has one. Yeah. So it's like, oh, you know, yeah. no, no one thinks about these things in the back oh, of the my, book. That my self-published book has one too. Exactly. I was, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, so and, and I want to go back to kind of just what you were saying about, you know, not right place at the right time, but you're saying how things kind of come into the public narrative. I've spent mm-hmm. the last three and a half years trying to finish, trying to finish a novel about a fictional rock and roll band. And nice. I'm at the end of it. I started another book as well, but I'm at the end of this novel and I'm putting it out, putting out some feelers and everyone keeps hitting me up. They're like, have you read Utopia Avenue? Have you read this book? And I'm like, wait, what? And now here I am three and a half years later with a book about a fictional rock and roll band. And Mm -hmm. it seems like publishers are only publishing books about fictional rock and roll bands. Are you fucking kidding me? You know, what's funny. I was thinking about an oral history for a musician and I swear, like the following week, I saw the news about Daisy Jones and the Six, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, my book it takes place in a different time, mm-hmm. different vibe. It's totally yeah. not like those books. But now I'm so, I'm like having nightmares now. I'm like, no, don't have nightmares. I think it. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that we have this collective creative unconscious. So I love it because a, it makes me think like, okay, we are definitely, there's a frequency that some of us all tune into. And, um, you know, like that there are these ideas that will kind of leap from one brain to another brain. And sometimes thematically we will kind of cover certain areas together, but at the same time, you have to trust that you have something to say and a way to say it that nobody else does. Well, I do because I toured in bands for 15, 20 years and I'm writing it from that person of the dude who right. actually lived in the van. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if David Mitchell's ever actually played a gig, um, right. but yeah, so uh, it's all good. And I also have other projects I'm working on, but it's just, as soon as you said that, I'm like, I, I cause it's my own inner dilemma I'm dealing with right now. I'm like, you gotta yeah. be kidding me. No, you have to write it because you look at it this way, you know, Utopia Avenue, that's set in the sixties, Daisy Jones in the sixties, the seventies, yeah. whatever like music, oral history or yeah. whatever I, I'm going to write is probably going to be set in the eighties and or nineties. So, you know, there's so many different approaches that you can take with it Yeah, that, you know, and that was the same thing with time travel that I never in a million years thought I would write a story about time travel. And when I was even vaguely entertaining the notion, I was thinking like, I can only do it if I have a way in that is different that I have a point of view. I have something to say, something to explore that is not just going to rehash what other stories. And I mean, you know, everyone could say it's, you know, spinal tap was already made. So, I mean, theoretically the the rock and roll thing's already been done because they created it. But again, what you're saying is there's always stories to be told within all these universes. Always. It's always, Um, it's about the nuance. It's about the point of view. It's about the voice. And it, well, it's about the voice. You know, again, I write much differently than David Mitchell. Um, and you know, again, people who might not like him 
might like the story that I tell, um, right. but they're the same person. They, they might be that same person who plays guitar or plays drums or whatever. Um, yeah, no, it's fascinating. So let's fast forward to the presence. And now right. we're here with your brand new book. And this is your third book, right? Well, it's my, Second. it's technically my, my traditionally published debut. I mean, it does get a little sticky. Like that was the only thing with self-publishing that, you what know, happened with the second book. It's just filed away. I trunked Got it. it. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. I don't know okay. what I'm going to do with it. It's, yeah. uh, it's a little, it might just be a little too dark and wacky to, if I, I could possibly rewrite it as like a suspense novel, but I, I, I'm moving forward and just trying to work on new things. Uh, so yes, it's, it's tricky. Like my, and my first book is actually, I unpublished it just so that all of the energy and attention could focus on Una. So readers that are finding published the self-published book. I did. I did. Interesting. Yeah. That's good for me to know in case I need to worry about that. <laughs> um, and I might republish it, you know, down the line, but like, this is the book that I know I put the most work into that. I feel like is the best thing of that course. I've written. So that's where I want readers to kind of begin with me. <clears throat> um, so I'm sorry. What was your question? Yeah, no, no. So I, I, well, I mean, well, I, I, there was really no question, but now I, I, I will now have a thought because it's interesting to unpublish the book. You know, I, I, again, I'm always going to come from the music world, and mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than listening to an album you made 15 years ago mm-hmm. and just cringing and just like, oh, like you know, the lyrics and whatever. Um, I, as an author, I don't know. I feel like I, I want. I, maybe I want that to stay out there, that first book. Um, and maybe people can see the development, you know, how sure. you go and whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. About it that way. And I, I, I keep going back and forth. Yes. And I, I have kind of wanted to return to it and it will. And I also have a lot of people asking me about it um, because they're like, I can only find it on eBay for like $50 and please don't spend $50 for this book on do eBay. Publish, do publishers and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm mis- I'm forgetting this. And I'm, I'm going to always pronounce his name wrong. Chuck Palahniuk, Palahniuk, however you say it. Chuck You were close. Didn't they republish his first book that was never published after he became successful. Do publishers ever do that? Oh, that happens all the time. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that I, with Stephen King, you know, he published under a pen name. And yeah, so, you know, once you become, you know, kind of big and once you have a huge readership that throw that shit out there clamoring for everything. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, in my case, I have new ideas and new stories that I'm developing and, you know, and so my editor said like, let's focus, like let's move forward. And to be perfectly honest with this first book, like I do, I am proud of it. And I did work super, super hard on it. And I worked with professional editors and, um, and, uh, copy editors. And so it's not that I just wrote this and, you know, it, it's been revised dozens and dozens of times. And, yeah. um, it, but it's the sort of thing where if I kind of brought it back out in the world, I know I'd want to take another look at it and tinker with it just to give it that one more polish. Sure. And I know that I couldn't just do something like that in five minutes, that that's something I'd really have to set aside you know, an amount of time. I don't like to do something unless I can be obsessively thorough about it. And honestly, that creative energy is something I want to put towards, you know, what I'm currently working on, future projects. Um, so it'll find its time uh, for the, but for now, I just, I feel like I have all of this exciting new material to focus on. We love it. Margarita, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, for people who can see the podcast, the new book is called Una Out of Order. And I do <laughs> love, I, I'm a big fan of the cover design. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, AJ Finn, the woman in the window. Yes. Yes. You know the cover of that, how it's the blinds, but the one blind's kind of like peeking down with the yes. letters and as someone's like peeking through. Yes. I kind of got that vibe. I, I I dig the cover art for sure. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, yeah, most definitely. It's paperback, so it's uh, available now in all formats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's that will, leads me to the, the last two questions I always ask. Um, mm-hmm. First off, are you have any social media presence? Do you do Twitter, Instagram? Where can people follow and find you? Yes, I, I'm not 
always active. I tend, I have phases where I'm very active and then kind of quiet. So I'm, I can be a little sporadic, but they can find me my, um, on, I'm on Facebook. I have an author page, Margarita Montemore. And then my handle for most social media is Damiella, D-A-M-I-E-L-L-A. I've been using that handle since I was 18 years old, since the AOL days. So I've just snatched it up every time there's a new social media platform. I reserve that immediately. So yeah, but I would say Twitter and Instagram, I am fairly, um, fairly active on and um, my website's montemore.com. And um, yeah, I love connecting with readers and this is so fun. It was so great talking to you. Oh yeah. Um, No, uh, one more question. Um, You're a uh, New York, New Jersey gal. Uh, Mm -hmm. What bookstores do you like to rep? Where should people be buying your books? Oh my goodness. I, well, I, I, the strand is one of my all time, all time favorite, um, Never heard of, it. of all time. And I was so, you know, d- during the pandemic, I saw that they were kind of going through a, a rocky period. And I'm so glad that, um, that readers have come together and, uh, you know, continue to support them and order from them. So um, I would say, yeah, I, you know, bookshop.org is fantastic in the way that it has rallied independent booksellers. Uh, I think that's a great way, uh, you know, if you don't have a local bookstore, just a great way to still support independent bookstores and find, um, you know, you can order the book online that way. Uh, so yeah, we really, got to give some love to some Jersey bookstores. Uh, we got a, uh, what's the bookstore in Montclair? Um, oh gosh. Um, I don't know what part of Jersey you're in. Uh, got it. I'm in South I'm, Jersey. You're in South Jersey. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. We don't. <laughs> oh, hey. uh, yeah. Uh, hold on. Oh my gosh. This yeah. is well, that's all good. What we is the, shout outs later. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. Cause I just, yeah, we're literally where I am. Um, I mean, there's, there's a really cute bookstore, um, in Haddonfield. Okay. Haddonfield, man. I haven't heard that name in a while. Um, <laughs> I mean, South Jersey to me was just Atlantic city, Philadelphia. Like that was the yeah. only times I ever, I dated a girl who went to Monmouth, but other than that, my South Jersey is limited. Yeah. And I'm actually, we're like 20 minutes outside of Philly, but yeah. So there's a, a cute store in Haddonfield called Inkwood. Um, Great. Yeah. So, and it. yeah, there's a, and I mean, yeah, I, I, I'd Give have shout to shout out. No worry. Margarita. Yeah. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you so much. This was yeah. so fun. And I hope you don't mind if I possibly pick your brain down the line because, um, for I, I, I'm going to need to do some research for a later project about music and touring and all of that. And I, I would be the man like, to talk to. Trust me, you are the expert. So I'd love to. Um, I'd love to. Nothing better. Fantastic. All well, right. thank awesome. you again. Enjoy the rest of your day. Then you too. Take care. This was so fun. Yeah. Later. <laughs>